Um, he is probably known to many of you, but he has kindly agreed to let me ask him a few questions by way of introduction. As I welcome him up, uh, I hope you give him a very warm welcome. It is uh, Jonathan Aitken. Jonathan, thank you so much for being uh, with us this evening. Um, for the sake of uh, anyone here tonight who might not uh, know much about you, uh, can I begin by asking, um, you're very open about your life, your career, and uh, that you spent part of it, a brief time at Her Majesty's Pleasure in prison. Uh, what was your life and your career before your time in prison? Well, when I was about the age of most people here tonight, I was a journalist. I started at the bottom in journalism. My first job was, I kid you not, assistant tennis and funerals correspondent of the East Anglian Daily Times. But I graduated with that in what was called Fleet Street. And for about 10 years, I was uh, things like a war correspondent. It's very exciting in Vietnam and uh, Biafra in the Middle East. And then I went off into television presenting. And then um, when I was 30, I got into Parliament. And I spent the uh, next 24 years in Parliament as an MP, um, part of it as a minister. Um, my two best jobs, I was a defence minister and I was in the Cabinet as Chief Secretary of the Treasury. Um, which I know, as the spending review is being debated on television, quite what a tough job that is. Um, there's an old saying, I think Enoch Powell said it, all political careers end in failure. And I proved that rather spectacularly um, <laughs> by um, uh, going from the cabinet to prison. It's a long story of why, uh, but um, anyway, that was my uh, big crash and failure. And... There in prison, you came to a very real and living faith in Jesus Christ. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it came about? Well, at this time, after this great crash, I was going through what I sometimes call defeat, disgrace, divorce, bankruptcy, and jail. And that's a pretty good royal flush of crises by anybody's standards. <laughs> and I think I'd have been rather insensitive when I was going through that sort of downward vortex if I hadn't sort of tried to think about all the kind of ways I had gone wrong. And one of the ways I'd gone wrong was to have lost, partly through sort of rising on the ladder. Uh, and um, I had lost my moral and spiritual anchors. And finding them again was not easy. Um, people sort of say, I, you know, I came to Christ, hallelujah, I was converted. Uh, with me, it was a much more difficult journey. I began as a sort of half-Christian. Um, I now know that's about as useful as being half-pregnant, but at the time I thought it was um, <laughs> absolutely fine to sort of you know, go to church occasionally and say the right things with my lips, not lead anything right with my life. But gradually I came to terms with where I'd been going wrong, and that took a bit of time. It wasn't sort of a quick fix at all. Um, much more a journey of stumbling, falling, sinning, backsliding, and yet gradually, with a lot of people helping, Alpha Course helping, prison prayer group helping, um, I think I got on the right track. And then I went off to Oxford and studied theology, uh, and uh, 
I hope came out uh, still a stumbling Christian, but uh, anyway, uh, I hope a better one. Mm. It's an amazing story, um, and it's led to quite a different uh, life and uh, career subsequently. Could you tell us a little bit about what life and what your work has been about since those days? Well, I have what is sometimes politely called a portfolio life, which means no one, including me, quite understands it. But it, it, it's just all kinds of bits and pieces. I mean, I work professionally and in my living professionally as a writer of books, as a writer of articles, as a business consultant. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, then I'm busy in the uh, charitable sector. Um, and uh, I do a certain amount of prison ministry for obvious reasons. I work very closely with your speaker next week, uh, Philippa Stroud of the Centre for Social Justice, a wonderful person, don't miss her. And uh, I'm a fellow of the Centre for Social Justice, concentrating particularly on their sort of criminal justice policy issues. And then I'm a kind of occasional amateur preacher like tonight. Mm. Well, we're thrilled to have you with us, Jonathan. Thank you so much uh, for giving up Thank your you. time to be with us. Um, can I pray for you then? Heather's going to bring our reading and uh, Jonathan's going to preach. Father, we thank you so much for this man Lord, before us tonight, Jonathan, your son, our brother. Thank you, Lord, for his life. Thank you for his journey. Thank you for where he's been, Lord. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for where he's headed. And we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would rest on him this evening, that you would anoint his lips, that his words would be the words of God to us and that he would be blessed as he speaks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles, there's pew Bibles and um, the green ones at the end of your row. And um, we're looking at Matthew 25 at verse 31, the sheep and the goats. It's page 941 in the pew Bibles. Give you a moment to, to grab it. <clears throat> Page 941, Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. The sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Thus reads God's word. Thanks be to God. Jonathan. Well, thank you, Heather, for reading that so movingly. Thank you, Pat. It's wonderful to be here at St. D's in such a young and vibrant church. And now tonight, we're going to tackle one of the toughest passages of all the Gospels. But let's pray first. O Lord, as we reflect on this great passage from St. Matthew's Gospel, the last and perhaps the most difficult of the parables of Jesus, may we open our hearts to his words, and may his words flow into our hearts. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, please, if you want to keep your pew Bibles open, well, I just, uh, in that opening prayer, um, said that this was one of the most uh, difficult parables, and I think I rather underestimated it with those adjectives, because personally I find this the most awesome and the most alarming uh, of passages. Uh, awesome because it is the gospel's litmus test which defines whether or not we are really committed to the great commandment, love your neighbor. Alarming because it is the starkest of stark reminders that we are all accountable to God and that each and every one of us will one day have to face his judgment. Now that beginning shows why so many people feel uncomfortable when they start to listen to this parable. And for that reason, its somber message is often ignored or at least diluted even by certain kinds of preacher who find all manner of excuses why it doesn't really apply to us today. And those excuse makers tend to argue that life, even spiritual life, simply isn't like this. How could, they argue, how could a loving God possibly be so judgmental as the king is in this story? 
And such doubters particularly don't like the way Jesus ends his parable in verse 46, telling us that those who have rejected him, the goats, and I quote, will go away to eternal punishment, adding that the righteous will inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the beginning of the world, eternal life. Now to lots of people, uh, that sounds either too bad or too good to be true. And such doubts, although I hope to convince you they're wrong, are perfectly understandable. And that's because we mortals are creatures of the present time. We find it difficult, especially when you're as young as most of you are, to look beyond the horizons of our present lives. And we find it even more difficult to get our heads around eternity. One humorist once compared this to a test match. Cricket is a game, said this wit, invented by the English, who, not being a spiritual people, needed something to help them understand the concept of eternity. <laughs> well, one earthly experience even longer than a test match is a prison sentence. And there are several reasons why I want to concentrate on this today. First and foremost, because we're looking at a passage of Scripture which highlights this subject as the last and perhaps the toughest challenge that Jesus set his followers. After asking them why they didn't feed him when he was hungry, visit him when he was sick, welcome strangers, which in contemporary parlance might mean the migrants and so on, he finally asks why none of them ever visited him in prison. And I think that must have come as a shock just as much to a first century audience as it perhaps does to a 21st century audience that Jesus seemed to include the lowest of the low, criminals and prisoners, in his sweeping embrace of love, as he does in verse 45. I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did not do it for me. Let's just reflect on this for a moment, uh, not only for the interpretation of Scripture, but also because in the modern calendar of the church, this happens to be Prisons Week, and additionally because, as you heard in the introduction, I have been a prisoner myself. Uh, ever since I came out of jail over 15 years ago, having served seven months inside for perjury, I've tried to keep in touch with prisoners and prisons, and I do so by being active in offender mentoring and prison ministry. Only last week I spent the afternoon in Pentonville launching an alpha course to some 40 to 50 inmates, a wonderful, inspiring experience. But I'm telling you this only because I do understand from the heart the impact both of being visited in prisons and of visiting prisoners. To get us really deep into all this, let me, uh, since I imagine very few of you have had the experience of what it feels like to be at the cold face of prison life. Uh, anyone's first day in prison is quite a shock to the system, and mine certainly was, as I came off the sweat box, the prisoner's name for a prison van, which brought me from the Old Bailey to HMP Belmarsh in South London, Britain's highest security prison. One of my fellow prisoners, 
cried out in the van in a loud voice, Welcome to hell. And I think he was saying it like it was, because a few seconds later, we all entered the reception cell at Belmarsh Prison, which is known in prisoner's jargon as the cage. And business in the cage that day was pretty brisk, because prisoners were pouring in from courts, having been sentenced all over London and southeast England, and the atmosphere was really terrible. If I said it was a mixture of anger, despair, physical violence, um, I'm telling it right. A lot of people were sobbing, a lot of people were burying their head in their hands, outbursts of fury and physical rage were all around it. And that was partly because of high expectations with the extraordinary but habitual optimism of the not guilty club of offenders. Most of these guys had assumed that the jury would believe every word they said. Most of them had thought the judge would be very lenient with them if that went wrong. And so when they get into the cage, doing a 10, doing a 5, whatever it is, uh, they go wild. I always remember a gang fighting among themselves, kicking one member of the gang in a very painful place, shouting, you got the script wrong, you got the script wrong, you idiot, that's why we're all here. I remember one young man who put his head down and charged with despair into the bars of the cage. It's an iron-barred enclosure, about a third of the size of this church. And until his head split open and blood poured all over the place and so on. Um, and I sort of saw this scuffling and fighting and punching up going on. And then suddenly an officer said over the tannoy, you lot, you're all going to go through induction. The word induction survives in only two places, in institutional Britain, Her Majesty's prisons, and the Church of England. Um, <laughs> vicars and prisoners uh, both get inducted into their respective institutions. Um, but needless to say, the rituals are rather different. Um, in prison, it's sort of strip-searching, mugshotting, fingerprinting, getting fitted up with a whole lot of ill-fitting prison clothes, getting told endless rules. And all this takes in place in and around the cage with um, what I really would describe as a sort of hellish atmosphere of noise and aggression. Rather daringly, in a moment or two, I'm going to tackle from a spiritual angle uh, the spiritual uh, subject of hell. But in case you think I've gone far enough, um, with dramatizing HMP Belmarsh, I'll just lighten the mood for a second by telling you about the one and only comic moment that happened during my induction. And this took place when an officer suddenly said to me, Akin, your turn to go and see the prison psychiatrist. And I was slightly surprised. I mean, I was, of course, feeling pretty down, but I didn't think I was quite that bad. Need the services of psychiatrists, but in actual fact, it's a very sensible rule. Every prisoner is checked by a psychiatrist as they come in to find out whether they're mentally ill, whether they're suicidal, and so on. And so off I went to see the psychiatrist. To get the comedy of this moment, you should remember that uh, 16 years ago, my sentence was not going unnoticed by the great British public and media. Um, in those days, it was real news. Things have changed a bit for a cabinet minister to be sent to jail. And so, um, I kid you not, outside HMP Belmarsh that afternoon, there were approximately 200 journalists, many of them television journalists with their big satellite dishes, 
transmitting live on the six o'clock news and so on. But all this excitement had somehow or other completely passed the prison psychiatrist by. Um, he'd been having a busy day, he hadn't been listening to the media, so to him I was just com another completely anonymous prisoner coming up to be interviewed. So he interviewed me by rattling off a set of bog-standard questions from a form. Name, prison number, date of birth, next of kin, does your next of kin know you're in prison? And the sentence question after that was, does anyone other than your next of kin know you're in prison? <laughs> So I gave the psychiatrist a wry smile, thinking of those satellite dishes and broadcasters, and I said, well, you know, matter of fact, I think by now, maybe 15 or 20 million people might know I'm in prison. Psychiatrist did not return my wry smile. He scribbled busily on a pad from him, <laughs> and, and, and then said in tones of some asperity, do you mean to tell me you really believe that 15 or 20 million people know you are in prison? Do you? And I nodded, and then his tone became gentler, <laughs> and indeed more clinical. <laughs> and he said to me in a soft, kind voice, may I ask you, have you in your life ever suffered from delusions? <laughs> well, my delusions were getting shed pretty fast that afternoon, but I won't go on with talking about that. I want to just pick up that word delusion, because it's such a good one also for the sheep and the goats parable. Because this parable often creates three major delusions among those who hear it. Delusion number one is that this, par this parable is so tough that what Jesus says actually doesn't apply to us today. And there's a chorus of people saying that. Some of them are liberal theologians who see the parable as a metaphorical, allegorical fairy tale, probably relating to uh, unsaved Gentiles in the first century, doesn't apply to us contemporary people at all. And then there are a group of people called reformed theologians who re say we can ignore this because it's uh, so close to justification for works, which is all wrong, it's the very antithesis of the teachings of Paul, Augustine and Luther. Although, as always, theologians on the other side, others point to the famous verse in the letter of James, chapter 2, verse 17. I think this does apply. Faith without works is dead. Now, on the issue of works, some modern commentators argue that in our society today, where we have extensive welfare state benefits, we have a fine national health service, we've got hostels and camps for migrants, we've got a decently run prison system. Against such a modern background, we simply don't need to listen to a whimsical parable some 20 centuries ago coming to us from Galilee, urging us to supplement the state's care by personal good works. Well, how wrong all those delusions are. And we should rebut them by championing three great spiritual truths which are implied in our reading. First truth is that we are all accountable. We may be free to live our lives just as we please, but in the end, we will have to give our account of how we lived our lives to the one who gave us life. The second truth is that God's judgment awaits us all. There aren't going to be any exceptions. Whether he is a merciful judge, 
may come down to whether we have recognized a third great truth. And this third great truth is that at the heart of the Christian faith lies a relationship with Jesus. Such a relationship now we have in this parable with its further and better particulars spelt out. Such a relationship means a willingness to follow Jesus in his loving, sacrificial care for others, particularly those he defines in this parable as the least of these, my brothers and sisters. Well, are we willing to imitate him and follow him in this? The second illusion which often arises as a reaction to this parable is the claim that Jesus' harshest words in it can be ignored on the grounds that there really is no such thing as hell. Now we do need to be careful here. It's true that the old hellfire and brimstone preachers of yesteryear probably were a bit OTT in some of their regular sermons on the terrors of hell. In this context, there's quite an amusing story about an old-fashioned 19th century minister from the stern, unbending Presbyterian Church of Scotland who regularly preached on hell. And one Sunday morning, he was warming to his familiar theme, advising his congregation, picking up a verse of scripture, that in hell there would be wailing and gnashing of teeth. But sitting in the front row was an infirm but rebellious old lady who simply couldn't stand hearing this stuff any longer. So she became a heckler and through her toothless gums, she muttered in the direction of the pulpit, not for me, I haven't got any teeth. <laughs> the minister bent over his pulpit and said, Madam, in hell teeth will be provided. <laughs> now this story may be apocryphal, but it does illustrate an attitude that is quite familiar nowadays. Hell is no longer feared because it has become a bit of a joke. A loving God, so the hell ridiculers claim, could not possibly believe in as judgmental uh, or behave in as judgmental and punitive way as the king does in this parable when he says to the goats in verse 41, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and all his angels. Couldn't sound much worse, could it? Well, inevitably, there are many interpretations of this difficult verse of Scripture, such as the origin view, the punishments of hell may not last forever, or the von Balthasar view, that with prayer all sinners can be saved from hell. Uh, these uh, arguments are well above my amateur theologian's pay grade, and I'm not going to go into them. But perhaps um, in the debate on whether hell exists, two facts stand out. The first is that there are uncomfortably many contemporary examples in human hearts and in human experience which suggest that hell can be a here and now reality. A few moments ago I was talking about the hellish atmosphere of Belmarsh Prison. But to give a much more bang up to date example, I was rather struck when preparing for this talk by a quote in a TV interview from one of the French police officers who was among the first on the scene at the 
storming of the Bataclan Theatre in Paris just after the terrorist massacre there. And he said that as he squelched his way in the dark across a floor which he thought was at first flooded with water, but then realized it was covered with blood and human entrails, this policeman said on television, I thought I had arrived in hell. Well, whatever the imagery may be, an evil, a precursor to hell certainly exists in our modern world. Perhaps the last word on the arguments about hell should be this. If hell does not exist, then it makes heaven meaningless. Which brings me to the third delusion arising from the arguments advanced by those who wish to brush aside this parable, and it's the delusion that heaven doesn't exist either. Now, heaven is a pretty difficult subject too, if only because so little is actually written about it in biblical scripture. Once upon a time, I was made to study and write about heaven. Uh, the context here was that after I came out of prison, the one place I went to which had worse food and worse plumbing than a prison was an Anglican theological college, uh, <laughs> Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. And there I was required to write weekly essays, and one particular challenging one had the title, What is Heaven and Who Will Get Into It? Well, I went off to the library and duly wrote three or 4,000 words on the subject, but my tutor, Alistair McGrath, now the Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford, called me up short in the tutorial by saying I'd gone on far too great length because there was only, only two things anyone could know or needed to know about heaven. First, heaven is where God dwells. Secondly, the population of heaven will be full of surprises. Those surprises bring me back to the subject of prisoners their rehabilitation and their redemption. The only person we can be certain of knowing we will meet in heaven is the penitent thief who was promised entry into paradise as he hung alongside Jesus on the cross. And his presence in heaven is an important reminder <coughs> that no one, whatever they have done, falls so low that they are ever beneath the reach of God's grace. I wonder whether that was the reason why Jesus included prisoners in his list of the least of these my brothers and sisters in his parallel. And just in case prisoners and prison seem a very far distant prospect from fashionable Fulham, just consider the point that Jesus may not have been speaking exclusively about criminal prisoners because there are many kinds of prisoners in this world. There are prisoners of sin, prisoners of wrong relationships, prisoners of flawed, pointless, purposeless lifestyles. Any of us who have ever been temporarily in any of these categories well know how such prisoners also need God's grace. God's grace can't be earned, uh, it's a gift. But I think perhaps we can position ourselves to be in the best possible place to receive God's grace.
And the whole point of this parable is that it seeks to persuade us to position and redirect our lives in the direction of a right relationship with Jesus. And it makes us face the fact that there is one and one only test of that relationship. It's this. How in our lives have we treated the poor, the sick, the lonely, the strangers, the hungry, and the imprisoned? It's the deepest question this parable throws up. Well, I've taken you on quite a journey in the last 25 minutes, um, but uh, any of the roads I've been down are frankly largely irrelevant to the central point. We can put aside theologians' theories about heaven and hell, all their arguments about whether justification by faith or justification by works are mutually exclusive. We can forget about, in today's world, whether politicians' promises, they happen to be admirable at the moment, about new policies for reforming our prisons or for rehabilitating offenders. The parable of the sheep and the goats is deeply personal and seriously challenging. And I think its challenges can best be expressed in three questions. Three questions are, what have I done for Jesus? What ought I to do for Jesus? What am I going to do for Jesus? Let me repeat those three questions. What have I done for Jesus? What ought I to do for Jesus? What am I going to do for Jesus? And when we grope for an answer to them, or when we really try to answer them in practical terms, just remember his words, which are at the center of this parable. When you do it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you do it to me. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. Thank you, Lord, for the wake-up call that lies in the story of the sheep and the goats. When our time comes to meet Jesus, our King, and we find ourselves giving an account of our earthly lives, may we have positioned ourselves so that we may receive his grace. May what we do in our lives for the service of the hungry, the sick, the lonely, the thirsty, the strangers and the prisoners be for our healing and our heavenly peace in the everlasting years. Amen.